entered the city and they slaughtered the citizens while they were sleeping. Wow. That was an absolute disaster that could have been easily avoided had they been alert. But they weren't alert. And you know what was interesting about that whole situation is three and a half centuries later, history repeated itself. Isn't that interesting how history repeats itself? And it happened again when Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis using the exact same tactics, climbing the north face wall, getting into the city while they're sleeping, destroying them. I tell you that story because history was about to repeat itself yet again. In many ways, the church in Sardis was plagued with the same problems as, as the city itself had been. I mean, just absolutely plagued with them. Um, but I want, I want to look at what Jesus had to say to them. And so this morning, I've asked someone to come and to read that letter for us again. And so I'm going to ask Sarah if she'll come up and she's going to read it for us this morning. It's the letter to Sardis found in Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, if you would like to follow along. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share three, oh, verse three, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God's love be made complete in us. Sincerely, the Apostle John. Thank you. Once again, as in the past letters that we've shared um, these past five or six weeks, Jesus shares the good and the bad, and he begins by sharing his credentials He always wants to let them know. So Jesus shares his credentials with the church at Sardis. In the description of himself, this is what Jesus says. He says in in chapter 3, verse 1, the first part of that, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's who he says he is. The, The seven spirits, or as the New Living Translation says, the sevenfold spirit of God is, of course, 
the Holy Spirit of God. You know, the, 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 the number seven, and we've talked about this before, the number seven used throughout Revelation, you know, symbolizes completeness. It symbolizes perfection. Also, these letters were, of course, sent out to seven churches, and the Holy Spirit is depicted as being present in each of them. Thus, we have the sevenfold spirit. Now, because the church in Sardis was on the verge of death, Jesus wanted to remind them that he is Jesus who holds and gives the Holy Spirit. It's all about him as we sang this morning. It's all about Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit who breathes life into his children and his church. God is always and will always be in control, no matter what happens. We can look at our government and think how terrible it is, but I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter how bad it's going to get. God is always going to be in control, no matter what. To a dying congregation, nothing could be more important than the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 6, verse 63. He said, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Think about that. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? We should all remember that. This is what he said to her in John chapter 4. And he said it in verses 13 and 14. He says, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what he tells her. Well, the question is, what is this water that Jesus is talking about? It's the whole, that's right. I heard someone say it over there. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, a few chapters later, this becomes even more obvious. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, this is what he says. He says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Keep it going there. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Oh, yeah? wonder when that was. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. See, that's why John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not given that Spirit yet. But if we move over here, interesting enough, we see this happen in the book of Acts chapter 2. Verses 36 through 41, it says, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, that question that was answered there or asked there was, How can we make this right? What do we have to do to be saved? 
or Peter then replies there. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off. That's talking about us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. So you see in John chapter 7, when he talks about that, that that it's yet to come, here it is. Right there it is in Acts chapter 2. Exactly what he was talking about over in John chapter 7 happens in Acts chapter 2. So over and over throughout God's word, the spirit is likened to water. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you think the spirit is likened to water? Well, I, I think maybe it's because the Holy Spirit does for the soul what water does for the body. What is it like? Our bodies are like 70% water. Isn't it something like that? Well, Dr. Don Colbert, in his book, The Seven Pillars of Health, devotes seven whole chapters to the benefits of water. This is what he writes. He says, water is the single most important nutrient of the body. He goes on to explain some of the advantages of keeping our bodies properly hydrated including greater energy, a heightened immune system. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Better nutrient absorption, prolonged life, weight loss. That's really what's wrong. Greater metabolic efficiency, reduced risk of heart attack, improved attention span. That's definitely what's wrong with me. Better memory. And the list goes on and on and on. All these things because of water. I'll give you a prime example. Sarah, I don't know how many months it was ago that you had to go for your blood work. But Sarah had to go for blood work a few months ago. And she went into the to the doctor's office and they were trying to get blood. And they couldn't get it. So what the doctor said was, go home, drink about two or three things of water, and then come back. She did that. Guess what? When she came back, it was flowing. That just shows you right there the effects of water on our body. It's amazing what a little water can do. Just absolutely amazing. If if natural water is so important to our bodies, how much more important do you think spiritual living water is for our souls? The Holy Spirit, the living water that Jesus offers, does for our souls what H2O does for our bodies. It's like walking out in the morning, and it's it's just really calm and peaceful, and you step out into the grass, and that dew is on the grass, and you can feel the water that's there. It's it's like that dew. You know, that, that morning dew on a dry grass. You know, the, the gift of God's Spirit, it refreshes, it revitalizes, it renews dry and thirsty souls. Is your soul a dry and thirsty soul? It will renew it. The Holy Spirit renews it. Max Licato puts it this way in his book called Come Thirsty. Anybody ever read the, the book Come Thirsty? Max Licato. It's a really good book. He says, 
you're acquainted with physical thirst. How many of you have ever been to the point where you almost thought you were going to die because you didn't needed a drink? I mean, it was so your 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 throat was just so dry and so thirsty. How many of you have ever been to that point? Some of you, okay. I remember um, Chuck Dowdy's son, Doug Dowdy, and Doug Hardman, or um, yeah, Doug Doug Dowdy and and Doug Hardman were over in the Middle East. They were looking for Noah's Ark, and they had gotten lost on that mountainside, Mount Ararat, somewhere in that area there. And they had stopped, and they thought, this is it. We're going to die because we don't have any drink at all, no water, nothing. And I just remember him talking about that, saying, we were so thirsty. And we laid down, and the next thing we know, there were, you know, I said, I, one of them fell asleep. The other one was looking around, couldn't find anything. And all of a sudden, some villagers came down, and they saved them because they gave them water. Just think about that, 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 that thirst, you know. If you've ever been acquainted with that physical thirst, you know what we're talking about. If you stop drinking for a few days, you'll see what we're talking about. I'm telling you. You know, um, if you stop drinking, you, your, your thoughts, you know, your cohort thoughts vanish. Your skin can grow clammy. Your, your vital organs can shut down, deprive your body of the necessary fluids. And it's going to tell you that it needs fluids. It needs drink. Well, the same thing goes with the spirit. Deprive your soul of spiritual water, and it's going to tell you. If you've got a conscience, it's going to tell you. Dehydrated hearts send desperate messages. Snarling tempers, waves of worry, growing guilt and fear, hopelessness and resentment and loneliness and insecurity. It sends all kinds of messages. Every genuine believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit from the moment of their conversion. But we all have to return to his, his well of living water to be, to be infilled over and over again. That, that's what it's all about. That's why we do our, our devotional times. That's why we spend time in prayer. It's those things that help to, to fill us up. Any professing Christian or church that isn't saturated in God's Holy Spirit might look alive, but they're really just dead zombies apart from the life-giving Spirit of Jesus. And so that brings us to the next part of Jesus' letter, and that's the criticism. You know, Jesus, Jesus shares some difficult criticism with the church at Sardis, and Jesus skips his usual compliments. He doesn't give them a compliment here. He dives right into the criticism of the church at Sardis. Maybe there was no compliment for them. I don't know, but he doesn't give them any. He says in, 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 in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 there, he says, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Did I wake you up? Wake up! Strengthen what remains and, and, and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. He tells us to wake up. What surprises, what surprises you about that passage? What surprises me most about the, the, this criticism is what's not there. 
in that criticism. See, there, there is no mention of any false doctrine having been adopted by the Christians at Sardis. None of that. Jesus doesn't chastise them because of some immoral or idolatrous behavior. He doesn't say anything about those things. He doesn't chastise them for any of that. These Christians weren't under any kind of persecution that we can tell of. Rather, like the soldiers who, who should have been standing guard when King Cyrus captured the city, the church had become complacent, perhaps maybe overconfident. Maybe they had just stopped caring. I don't know. See, the universe that God has made is so complex and immensely vast. How many of you have ever been to the Creation Museum? Have you, some of you been? You ever been to the planetariums? The one planetarium where you have to lay in that real comfortable chair and you lay back and it's really hard to stay awake? <laughs> you don't want to fall asleep? I tell you what, that opened my eyes up to the vastness of the universe. Our galaxy alone is so huge that astronomers had to come up with a whole new unit of measurement called a light year. One light year, how many, how many know what the distance of a light year is? One light year is the distance that light can travel in one year, around 186,000 miles per second. That's how fast light travels, which amounts to more than 6 trillion miles in one year that light can travel. 6 trillion miles in one year. The incredible distance that the light from some stars has traveled in order to reach our tiny little globe creates this interesting paradox. Let's say five years ago a star went supernova and exploded some 30 light years away. We we wouldn't even know for another 25 years because that's how long it would take for that light to reach us. 25 years. So even though the star is dead and gone for the next 25 years, when we look up into the sky and we see way, way, way out there in the distance, it looks like a star still glowing there, bright, twinkling across the galaxies. But in fact, it's gone. It exploded. It went into supernova and exploded. See, that's what happened to the church in Sardis. They didn't go supernova. There was a time when this church was alive and active, when the church was an influence in the community, a time when their passion for Jesus burned as brightly as any star would burn. They still had their reputation. But you know what? That's all they seem to have. Some time ago, without anyone maybe even noticing it, their passion died. Their star burned out. And all that was left was this husk of a once proud congregation, a fancy stained glass sanctuary that served as nothing more than a monument to the past glories 
a cathedral ceiling tomb. You know, it, it wasn't because of violent persecution or heretical teaching. It was because people there just stopped caring. They just stopped caring. You know, they, they were content. They were content with all the, the good they had done in the past. And, you know, we have to be really careful that we don't rest on our laurels. You know what I'm saying? Do you get the picture? And see, that's what they were doing. One, one by one, they, they stopped ministering to one another. They stopped fellowshipping. You know, maybe they had decided that they didn't need to go to church two times a week. And so they decided to skip Sunday and go Wednesday or, or go Sunday and skip Wednesday. They just didn't need to, they didn't need that much. They don't need that much religion. You know, they quit inviting their friends and their neighbors. They, they probably, you know, wouldn't be interested anyway. Perhaps the pastor, you know, still asks the volunteers occasionally, but huh, who has time for that sort of stuff? You know, that's kind of funny. I, I wanted to say that because when I was um, ministering in Newberry, my responsibility was to recruit teachers and stuff like that. And every time of that year when people knew I was going to be on the warpath looking for people, they, they always ran from me. <laughs> you know, they, they would run from me. <laughs> and so, you know, as ministers, you know, as, as the, the pastor still asks for volunteers occasionally, but who has time for that sort of stuff? You know, maybe they still enjoy coming and listening to a sermon or two, but rarely, if ever, did it have any impact on their lives after all, it's my life and it's my choice. So, but you know, like the, like the fig tree from Jesus' parables, they bore leaves, but the people at Sardis, they seemed to not bear fruit. They were alive on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. So, what do you do when you find yourself living among a dead and dying church, what do you do? What do you do? Well, lucky for us, Jesus gives us a command and he gives the Christians at Sardis the answer to that very question. He says this, you know, when I was a chaplain at the Williamsport Hospital, and I worked in the emergency room, you could hear all kinds of orders being flying around. And they made these circles in the, in the, in the emergency room areas where they would bring the, the people into. And, and these circles is where the, the, the um, chaplain would have to stand. And we could watch what was going on, them getting the bodies pre- prepped for us to be able to go over and have prayer with the, with the person that was, was brought in. But we couldn't step out of that circle until they gave us the, t- the permission to do that. And so we had to watch what was going on. And so you would hear all these orders being flown around. Start the IV. We need to intubate. You know, it's, it's a race against death. And, and sometimes their lives were, were hanging by a thread. So you see, for Sardis, their spiritual death was imminent. It was absolutely imminent. And in the verses that, that we are going to read... Here are, there, there's five specific commands to resuscitate a failing church. Notice what it says there. 
in Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come. That's what he tells them. You know, the first step to revival, or the first step in revival, you know, which is what this church desperately needed, is to recognize their situation. You gotta recognize what's going on. You can't have your, your head in the sand. You gotta know what's going on. It's, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. That's the first step. These people needed to wake up to the reality that was around them. You know, most, most of the, the churchgoers were, were, they were just playing church. We can't just play church. Many of their members were, were spiritually dead or, or dying. And, and the church body as a whole, it basically had one foot in the grave. Jesus was ready to pull the lampstand from them. Have you ever known churches that have had that happen to them? Remember that, that story about the lights in the storage closet that I read to you? They got those, they got those candles from a church that had closed down. The lampstand had been removed. Many of their members were, were spiritually dead or dying. And the church had one foot in the grave and the situation wasn't going to get any better on its own. It was past time to wake up and take action. Snap out of it. Snap out of it, Jesus is saying. So his first command is wake up. It's a, it's a picture of someone shaking someone who's going into shock. Have you ever been there to see that happen? When someone is going into shock and you're trying to keep them from going into shock, from going into a coma. Because see, from there, sometimes there's no return from that. And so the, it's, it's like that shaking someone to keep them awake. Don't pass out on me. Stay awake spiritually and and stay alive and is the message you know Jesus wants them to stay alert and to and to watch out for the old devil and his crafty ways because he's looking for ways to constantly bring us down Jesus wants them to stop living on past experiences and to nurture a dynamic relationship that will act as a guard against the enemy and encroachment through false teachings or compromise. He wants us to stand strong. The second thing he points out in this passage here is strengthen the remnant. What little remains. Strengthen that. Jesus gives, he gives attention to the flicker of life that, that does remain. And he says, whatever you do, try to keep it alive. Don't let it go out. Nourish. Nourish it. Imitate the faithful few among you so that the entire church will eventually regenerate to become this healthy body again. Fan the flame. Have you ever tried to do that? You're trying to blow. Fan that flame. Get it going. And sometimes 
It takes just a few people to do that. But if you do that and you do it well, it can work. And then he says, remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. The Greek term for remember what you have received and heard literally means keep on remembering. Never forget what you have received. What have they received? First of all, the good news. You need to live it. You need to share it. Second of all, faith. Grow in it. Defend it. And then the third thing he says there, remember your your spiritual gifts and and use them in service to Jesus Christ. And then the fourth thing is forgiveness. Seek Christ's forgiveness and humbly extend that forgiveness to others. And then the last thing I want to point out is Jesus urges them to never forget what they have heard. In other words, basically, don't forget my teachings. Don't forget my teachings. And then the fourth thing here, he says, apply the truth. Christ's next command is a, is a life-saving application of practical truth. You know, pr- absolute practical truth. Keep on applying the truth that you hear. Be doers of the word, not just hearers only, as James tells us. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Obey it and share it, whatever you have learned with others. And then the fifth thing that he says there is you need a change in direction. What does that mean, a change in direction? It means to repent. Jesus' last command is simply repent. No more flirting with commitment. Repent. Change your directions now. Doctor's orders. That is Dr. Jesus. Jesus was the great physician. And he's telling us to change our direction. Repent. And if the church at Sardis refuses to follow these commands, what does Jesus say to them in that that last part of verse 3 there? He says, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour that I will come. Jesus is reminding them of their past when they were overconfident and their city was taken by King Cyrus in Antichus the Great. Did you pick up on that? He's, he's telling them, because it happened to you before, Sardis. You thought you were impenetrable, but King Cyrus and, 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 and Antichus from, you know, they both, they both came and they, they captured your city. You're not as impenetrable as you thought you were. And Jesus is telling them that. I will come like a thief. He's reminding them. But for that small remnant that had remained faithful, Jesus gives three gracious promises to them in Revelations chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is what he says. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He goes on to say, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, from the Lamb's book of life, he's saying there, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first promise that he gives in this passage here is the promise of eternal righteousness. 
you will walk with me in white. In other words, Jesus will clothe them with his purity, and that means they will stand justified in the sight of God, just as if they had never sinned. They will stand justified in the sight of God with their, with their white garments on. Second promise is a place in heaven. Don't we all want a place in heaven? We absolutely do. Your name will be in the, in the, in the book of life, he says. That is security. Jesus will fulfill his promise to the remnant, his followers, that nothing can separate them from the Father. Nothing will ever be able to separate them from the Father. And then the third thing that he says there is that Christ gives them his own personal promise. He says, your name will be announced before the Father and the angels. It's like that, you ever see some of those old shows that that the mid mid um, century type of shows where they they do the 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 bugles or whatever, and here comes you know Bob Hart and and they're going to announce that name before the 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 Father and the angels in heaven. They're going to announce that name, and Jesus is going to be the one that does it. I bet you, when Jesus vouches for you, <laughs> you're okay, folks. The, the folks in Sardis needed to fan the, the smoldering embers of their love for Jesus into a flame once again. You know, they needed to remember the hopelessness of life without Christ and the sense of relief and awe they felt when they were born again, experiencing his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his love. Do you remember those days? Do you remember that day when you were born again? Do you remember it? How wonderful that was? They needed to return to the central theme of the gospel. The central theme of the gospel is the sinfulness of men, the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, and eternal life that Jesus offers to each one of them and to each one of us. That's what it's all about. Sometimes, you know, it it might take a while for the rekindled light of Jesus to reach the darkest places of our hearts. But if they would just let him in, if they would open their lives to his sevenfold spirit, then streams of living water will flow again from their hearts. The same is true for each one of us as well. Have you ever seen that picture of Jesus standing there at that door? The light's over there, and you see the door, and it's like, you know, whoever opens the door to let him come in. You notice the funny thing about that, with that door that's there? What's missing? What's that? The doorknob. That's because it needs to be opened from the inside. You need to do that. This morning... The invitation is open to all who need to come. See, many of you sitting here this morning are part of the remnant. You're part of that remnant. And what I say to you is keep the, the, the flame burning brightly until Jesus comes to take you home or that you go to meet him, whatever that is. Re- remain alert and be on guard. You know, there may be some here who have fallen asleep and, and they need to wake up. See, now is the time 
to come out of the coma. Now is the time to stand up and be counted among the living, the true spiritually alive remnant. You know, Jesus' promise to those who remain, if you remember from verses 4 and 5 there, is this, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their name from the book of life, and I will announce before my Father and His angels what they are. They are mine. His promise to the people at Sardis is His promise for you and me. If we are awake, so wake up! Seriously, wake up! We all need to wake up! He's got that promise for us. So this morning, if you need to come, the band's going to come, and we're going to close our time together by singing our last song. And if you need to wake up, if you need to come, we offer that to you this morning.